Um, well, we're beginning a new series today, my friends. Beyond belief. Beyond belief. What does beyond belief mean? Beyond belief is a phrase that's often used to describe something that's incredible. Um, unbelievable is the way a lot of people would put it. It's, it's the thing that's hard to take in. And for a lot of critics, a lot of skeptics of Christianity, Christianity and any religious enterprise is just that. It's beyond belief. It's something that could not possibly be believed by a rational person. Or could it? I'm engaging in what I would call play on those words, but I want to look at those words in particular. Beyond means going further than, and belief is affirming a principle or idea. And it's my hope that as we gather together during the next two months, that we will be move beyond merely affirming the proposition God exists to real belief, confidence in God, a lived confidence. The scriptures call that faith. Faith means trust. It is a reasoned belief. It's something I have reason to believe is true. And reason is what we're going to be focusing on for the next two months. We'll be engaging in what we call Christian apologetics. Everyone say apologetics. Okay, now if you've never heard that term before and you're worried, you've just stepped into a cult, don't freak out. I was, I was at a deal, auto dealership one time and I was waiting for my car to get worked on and I'd met another Christian and, and a third Christian came in and, and I was talking about Christian apologetics and this guy looked at me like I had three heads. He's like, what's that? And, and so I tried to explain it to him and he was still very skeptical. Here's what apologetics is. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense or to give an answer back. And the idea is as believers, we are meant to be able to defend our faith, to talk intelligently about what we believe and why we believe it. But I mean, isn't faith just checking your brain at the door and deciding you're going to believe what ain't so? No, it is not. Faith is something you have trust in, a reason to believe is true. And so for the next two months, we'll be looking at science, we're going to be looking at history, we'll be looking at philosophy, we'll be looking at archaeology in order to establish that what we believe is not unreasonable. I hope that you're ready. Um, it will be a drink from the fire hose for the next two months. I apologize in advance, but I kind of don't. Should be an adventure. All right. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord and God, as we are about to dig into uh, some philosophy, I know not, not everybody is naturally inclined to philosophy. So Lord, we want to pray, um, as we see in the book of James, we want to pray for wisdom. Uh, Lord, would you, just, would you just fill us with your Holy Spirit and, and cause us to have understanding that goes beyond natural means. Cause us to ingest and understand in a way that advances your cause here on earth. God, to that end, I'm also asking the Holy Spirit to speak in and through me um, so that you can bypass even obstacles that maybe have been set up between you and believers in this room. We love you, Lord. We praise you for the gift of the mind. Help us to engage it just now. It's in your holy, precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Why did Jesus come into the world? That's a big question. Why did Jesus come into the world? Now, there are probably a lot of answers kicking around in your head, if you've ever thought about this issue. But Jesus answers this question directly. Why did Jesus come into the world? Look at John chapter 18. Everybody flip your Bibles open to John chapter 18. We'll be looking at verse 37 and 38. John chapter 18, verse 37 and 38. Jesus is standing before Pilate. He is on trial for his life. And here's what we read. John chapter 18, verse 37 and 38. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, 
You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who hears or who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, Pilate's response here could have been given by many in this generation. What is truth? Uh, that could be a legitimate question. What is truth? I don't know. I don't understand. Or, or it could be kind of a flippant refusal to even deal with it. What is truth after all? Ravi Zacharias, the great apologist of this last century, uh, was talking about this very episode. And he said, what a tragedy it is that Pilate asked that question and then turned away. Do you wonder what Jesus would have said? That's one of those questions I intend to ask the Lord when I actually get to heaven. If Pilate had stayed and listened, I really would have liked to have heard what you said next. What is truth? It's a difficult question to answer because it could mean a lot of different things, couldn't it? It could mean what is ultimate reality. It could mean what are the facts. It could mean what can be known with certainty. What is truth? Well, in this session, we are going to be dealing with objective truth. Everyone say objective truth. Okay, here's the deal. If you don't pay attention to what I'm about to tell you, to what I'm about to say, you might miss out on the whole rest of the sermon. So hone in here real quick. I want to remind you of the difference between objective and subjective. Subjective truth is a truth that is not true for everyone. It's truth that is subject to change. It can alter in value depending on individuals or circumstances. So here's a subjective truth. I like broccoli. That's all dependent on me. Or dogs are better than cats. That's, that's an opinion. It's subject to change. You might not believe that. That might not be true for you. Subjective truth. Uh, similarly, there are those who believe that religious views are all subjective. So you say something like, I believe in God. And there are some people who hear you and they don't think you've said something about some objective reality out there. When they hear you, all they hear is you talking about something that you believe. It's just for you. It's not for them. So a, a subjective truth applies to individuals, but is not universal. It's not absolute. By contrast, objective truth. Objective truth, also known as absolute truth. This is a description of something that is true no matter what the circumstances are. So for instance, 2 plus 2 equals 4 has traditionally been held to have been objectively true. True no matter what. True on planet Earth. True 1,000 years ago. True 10,000 years from now. True on Jupiter, if you could get to Jupiter. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Similarly, there's no such thing as a married bachelor. It's an objective truth. They're contradictions. There's no such thing as a square circle. Or here's an objective truth. I exist. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute. I, can... I saw the matrix. I don't, I don't know that I exist. Yeah? Who doesn't know that you exist? Well, that would be you. Uh, Descartes actually was dealing with this issue, a famous philosopher, Descartes. Um, he resigned himself to find something he could be absolutely sure of. And so for days he sat and he tried to think of something that he could not doubt. And so he thought about things and he kept systematically doubting everything. And finally he got to the point where he went, <gasps> Cogito ergo sum, the cogito principle. I think, therefore I am. You ever heard that? That's Descartes. Here's what he means by that. If I am thinking, then I'm a thinking thing. I can't doubt that I'm a thinking thing because as soon as I try to doubt, I'm thinking. 
All right? So I know that I exist, at least that I exist. Believe it or not, that whole last category of objective truth has become suspect in our time. There are people who work very hard not just to deny absolute truth, but to deny even the possibility of absolute truth. Not only do they say, I can't know, but they say, you can't know. None of us can know anything as absolutely true. Let's talk about those categories of people. I want to discuss living without truth. Some of you right now might be sitting there thinking, why should I have to talk about this stuff anyway? This is just highbrow stupidity. Why should I have to deal with idiots who think there's, there's no such thing as objective truth? Can I suggest that maybe we don't want to call those people idiots because there are a lot of them around and because the Lord our God does not designate them as his enemies, nor does he designate them as your enemies. Right? They, you have an enemy, the enemy, Hasatan, the enemy. Satan is the enemy of mankind. Other human beings who are out there are your estranged brothers and sisters who are looking for their father, and many of them have fallen into pits. They're in a position where they need help. They have been deceived. So it's our job then not to rail against them, not to hate them, but to love them enough to seek them out and maybe even love them enough to work with our brain for a little bit so we can talk to them better. Amen? These people need Jesus. Let's say that again. These people need Jesus. We will, a lot of these people are going to never listen to anything you say so long as they hold certain views, and one of those views is a diminished view of truth. When someone believes that we all cannot possibly know what is real, what is true, what is valid, there's no way to talk to that person meaningfully. Let me try to illustrate it. Imagine there were a man who from birth kept his eyes closed, tightly shut, and he denied the possibility of light, and he denied the possibility of vision. Can't exist. Can't happen. And imagine you go to that individual and you say, I'd like to talk to you about the color blue. Now for him, you're just talking crazy talk because there is no light. There's vision. And, and he says, that's madness, no light, no vision, no such thing. And you say, no, but I, I'm not talking to you about a light or vision. I just want to talk to you about blue. For him, the distinction is all figment of the imagination. You're talking across one another, but you can't really speak meaningfully to one another. The only way to have a meaningful conversation is to have some shared agreement, some absolute truth. When there's someone who believes there is no truth, capital T, such a person is hopelessly detached not just from knowledge of God, but from reality altogether. When we can't agree on the fundamentals of reality, we can't have a real conversation. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody, and as you're conversing with them, you realize like you don't share the same definition of the terms you're using? Have you had that happen? Sometimes you'll do that with the gospel or with Jesus. You start talking to somebody and you're talking about Jesus, but what you say clear, clearly does not connect with him. What you say about God, they clearly have a different version. They've got this like Santa Claus in the sky, and you mean the monotheistic God of the scriptures. There was a time when I was uh, in college, I was working in a latchkey program, and I uh, was working with older kids. But one of my duties was to be out kind of on the playground area as these kids were out there and make sure they didn't kill each other or themselves. And, and so I was watching over these kids, and, and, and uh, in the midst of this particular day, a baby skunk went running across the playground. Now, if you've ever seen a baby skunk, they're one of the most cute creatures on planet Earth, but they're a skunk. And so we had this bullhorn uh, that we used to get the kids' attention, and we had an alarm on it, so we sounded the alarm, 
And all the kids knew that if that happened, they had to come line up in their respective groups. And so they did. Everybody came back and lined up. And so I went from group to group to explain to them this, this simple truth. Listen, I know baby skunks are cute. You probably saw that. You're probably thinking I can go touch that or hold that, or maybe I'll take it home and make it my pet. No. If that thing sprays you, it's not just that it spell, smells bad, but that spray, it's going to sting your eyes. It's going to burn your nose. It's very uncomfortable. Oldest group gets it. I moved down the ranks, group to group to group. Everybody got it till I got to the four-year-olds. When I got to the four-year-olds, I said, listen, skunks are cute. I know that looks cute. You want to touch it. You want to hold it. But if that skunk sprays you, it's going to sting your eyes and burn your nose. One little boy raised his hand and said, Mr. Ben, does skunks spray bees? Mr. Ben, do skunks spray bees? You see, I had said, it stings your eyes. And in his mind, he went, I know what stings eyes. It's bees. And, and so he said that, and immediately I just burst out laughing because that's hilarious. But here's the deal. You know who didn't burst out laughing? Several of the little girls in class who now had this vision of an animal that sprayed bees out of its backside that would sting your eyes and burn your nose. And so one girl began crying immediately, and she started crying, and then it just caught. The whole rest of the class began weeping, which made me laugh harder. And, <laughs> and so we had the, some of the women who typically are, were good at working with that age group come over, and they're looking at me like, what have you done? And which has me laughing that much harder, so it got very difficult to explain. Now listen, that's cute when it happens with an adult trying to explain something to a four-year-old. At least for me, that's cute. Not so cute when you're trying to have a conversation about God and you can't match up on any of the terms. It ruins the discussion. Absolute truth is one of those things we absolutely have to agree on in order to have any headway in a conversation about God. So why should we do this? Because pulling someone out of a pit requires that you know there's a pit. Denial of truth is an ideological pit that people fall into and it will ruin their capacity to function in this life. Why should we study this? Because if you're a believer, the more you know about your view, why you believe what you believe, the more confident you'll be of your worldview. If you know the other views better than adherence of those other views, here's what I've discovered. You've got no problem talking to other people about God because you know where the conversation's gonna go. So as we study this, as we try to understand this, this is also to bolster our faith not just so that we can talk to other people about God. We're also commanded to talk to other people about God. 1 Peter 3.15, it's your memory verse for this, to, this month. So 1 Peter 3.15, you thought I forgot, I didn't. Ugh. Here's what 1 Peter 3.15 says, but sanctify or set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be prepared to offer a defense to anybody who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Be ready to defend your faith, to talk about your faith intelligently with those who don't believe. Let's describe the pit. I want to talk about people who believe there is no absolute truth. Really, we're going to deal with three categories. There are more than three, but these are the three major categories in our current setting of people who do not believe that there is absolute or universal truth. The first category is postmodernism. Everyone say postmodernism. I knew that you could. Postmodernism is the belief that the use of language and any form of communication makes us hopelessly subjective. You can't be objective as soon as language enters the scene. 
So you'll never know anything for sure. You can only have what they call a narrative or a truth story. You might find it compelling, but it's just a story. There's no way to be sure that it is the truth. No way. Postmodernists hold that every belief set in this world is just a narrative. It's just a story, one story among many. So Christianity, therefore, is a narrative or what they would call a meta-narrative, which means a big story. It's a story that describes things in certain ways, but it's no different than other stories that are out there, stories like atheism or stories like the discipline of psychology or stories like shamanic tribalism or like science or like communism. Those are all just stories, and Christianity's just one of many. If there is a God, that God could not possibly be known, according to a postmodernist, because we have to understand that God in terms of language. So language makes us subjective. All language is biased. That's what a, a uh, postmodernist would say. Absolute truth can never be known because we are subjective vessels using subjective language. Sorry, you've got no hope of knowing what's really real. That is a postmodernist. The second category I want to look at is a relativist. So a postmodernist says all, all beliefs are just stories. What does a postmodernist say? All beliefs are just, okay, just stories, just narratives. The relativist says that uh, all belief, all truth is highly individualistic. It's all individualistic. Each person gets his or her own truth, and all of those truths may contradict one another. You get a truth, and you get a truth, and you get a truth. Everyone is right whenever they talk about their truth, but they're wrong to imply that their truth applies to anyone else. Okay, so you can talk about what's true for you. The moment you think what's true for you should be true for somebody else, then you've crossed a line. Everybody gets to be right. Truth is subjective and individualistic. Okay, so postmodernism. All truth is just a, it's just a story, just a narrative. Uh, relativism believes that everybody gets their own truth, okay? Agnosticism is the third view. Agnosticism comes from, two, uh, from a conjunction of words, ah, which means the negation of, and gnosis, knowledge. No knowledge. An agnostic is not somebody who doesn't know. An agnostic is somebody who believes they cannot know. And not only that they cannot know, you cannot know. Nobody can know. All right? Many people don't want to deal with the implications of ultimate truth. Um, and so to shelter themselves from it, they deny the capacity to know anything. So long as I can't know anything, I'm not responsible for knowing certain things. All right, well, what's at stake? Some of you are like, why are we doing this? Listen, what's at stake? Imagine going to a football game, and as you get to the football game, the kickoff happens, but the kickoff only goes about six feet, and then the team who kicked it off picks it up, and they run it back into the end zone that they were supposed to be defending, and they declare that they've got a touchdown. Coach on the opposite team says, uh-uh, new rule. Whenever they get a touchdown, we automatically get a touchdown plus one. And the coach on the opposite team then informs the referee that that's not true. Anytime they get a touchdown because we got a touchdown, then we automatically get a touchback. And, and, and basically, they contrive the rules as we go along. This is what happens when we all deny that truth and reality exists. Everybody makes up the rules all the time. They change the rules as things go. The rules of the game are perpetually changing. Have you ever looked at the world and thought, how on earth are so many people so variant in their ideas, holding to all these weird truths and hating one another? Postmodernism. 
It made its incursion into the universities really strongly back in the 90s, but for the several decades now, it's been working its magic on the whole of our culture. Academia is ruled by and large by postmodernist beliefs. The idea that everything is just a story. If you've ever looked at the world and thought, how can people argue that, that uh, there's no such thing as gender? That seems absurd to me. Postmodernism is how. We're changing the story. So the story's been two genders for a long time, but we've decided it's just a story. We can make up a different story, and that's what's happening. Postmodernism doesn't just taint our culture. It doesn't just cause problems when Christians try to talk to people in culture, but postmodernism has invaded the church. Initially, they did so through the movement known as the Emergent Church. Uh, Emergent Church decided, basically, there were Christians who decided everything that's being said in the church is just storytelling. And so they decided they did not like some of the stories. So people like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren have denied central pieces of Christian theology like marriage, issues like sexual parameters that the God of this universe put into place. Uh, Rob Bell even denies the possibility of hell. He's a universalist, so he wrote a book called Love Wins where he explains that no matter what you do in this life, no matter what you've done, you're going to go to heaven one way or another. So Adolf Hitler, sorry, you're going to be in heaven. That was his position. Rob Bell says this, the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. Hear that? If you, if you reference the Bible, you're irrelevant. Why? How does a person reach a condition where they can go, you know what, sexual parameters, toss it to the wind. You know what, the concept of hell, who cares? You know what, everybody goes to heaven no matter what. I'll tell you how, postmodernism. He believes that he can change the story. Shouldn't surprise you that he's one of Oprah's favorite people in the world. Let's discuss relativism and what happens when relativism gets its tendrils into culture. Relativism is the normal and safe view in our culture presently. Everybody gets to be right. No one's allowed to tell anyone else that they're wrong. It's more than rude. It's unethical by our cultural standards. You guys have probably all experienced this. Try to advance a universal truth in the public square. How are you received? Not well, I'm guessing. Anyone who claims to have universal truth is usually chastised or sought out for destruction by the larger community. And you know who gets in on the game? Often other Christians. If I went and I began speaking truths from the scripture in the public arena, one of the first critics that would usually level accusations against me are other believers. They would do, do so automatically and unquestioningly, looking at the world and going, see, we're on the same side. That guy over there, he's uncouth. That guy is bigoted. That guy lacks the necessary subtlety. It's worse than that, though. When relativism gets into the church, the church loses all its power. It is completely castrated. There are a considerable number of churches in this world that have given up on the practice of training believers in real doctrine and actually making disciples. Why? Because it's controversial. So instead, they deal in pop psychology and spiritual vagaries. They get up and they say nothing every Sunday. And people love it. What about agnosticism? What's at stake if agnosticism has its way? To say I don't know or to say you don't know is perfectly fine. That's healthy. That's good. So long as you're pursuing knowledge, you're trying to learn, you're trying to understand, you're trying to reach a reasonable conclusion. But here's what I find. Agnostics are not people who are going, I don't know and I'm going to. 
Most of the agnostics I know and have known are people who say, I don't know, and I'm perfectly content to be that way. They're what I would call a contented agnostic. I don't know, and I'm perfectly happy to stay there. A contented agnostic is moving forward, but they're doing so in neutral. They're not getting anything done. There is no accomplishment mentally. In the game of ideas, it's the equivalent of the kid who's sitting down in the outfield picking dandelions, or the kid who takes his ball and goes, I'm, I'm going home. It's checking out. It's getting out of the argument or the discussion. So let's ask this question. Are they right? Are they right? Is there no objective, no ultimate, no absolute truth? What can really be known? Fact and opinion, real interpretation. Can anything really be known? Listen, guys, no one, no one, no one lives their life as if there is no absolute truth. People will say they do. People will deny ultimate truth. People will deny absolute truth. But they all live their lives as if there is absolute truth. Anyone who tried to hold such views is hopelessly trapped in contradiction. But let me suggest to you that people have been at the knowledge and understanding paradigm for a long time. Philosophy for thousands of years has been asking the question, what can be known and how can it be known? So let me briefly trot out a little bit of epistemology. Epistemology is the philosophy of knowledge, all right? Bear with me for just a moment. I promise I will make this brief. Can anything be known? Yes. There are three major tests of truth that philosophers apply all the time. Test number one is correspondence. Correspondence. Does the claim that is being made match or mesh with reality? Does it correspond to what we really see? So let me use an illustration of this. Correspondence theory of truth or understanding of truth. If I made the statement, there are six members of my immediate family, could you find out if that corresponded to reality? Sure. You start watching my family on a regular basis. How many people are getting into that car? How many people are at the breakfast table? You could show up at night and count how many people are in the beds in the house. Please don't show up into my house in the middle of the night and count <laughs> how, many, how many people are there. And you could assess it and you might go, okay, there are six people in this immediate family. It seems to correspond to reality. By contrast, take this claim. I am a trout. I am a trout. So you might think, well, let's see if Ben is a trout. I know a few things about trout. And you come up on stage and you begin examining me. I don't see scales. Somebody lifts up my beard and they say, there are no gills here. Let's hold them underwater because trout can respirate in water. And so you hold me underwater for 20, 30 minutes. Turns out I couldn't respirate in water. Ben is not a trout. It does not correspond to reality. Okay, so correspondence, one way to figure out what is true. Secondly, the second of the three C's, coherence. Do the facts come together as an integrated whole? Do they align and complement one another? This is a reference to concepts' ability to explain the whole body of information. So when we consider all the information, does my idea make sense of all the information? Let me give you an illustration. The law of gravity. Do you know why gravity works? No, you don't. If you're like, I probably should have learned that in high school or college, we're still not sure why gravity works. You might have been told in school, it's an inherent characteristic of matter, which means we don't know how it works, but it seems to work, all right? Um, now, there are a couple theories. One of the theories is that there's this elementary particle known as a graviton that is causing bodies to be drawn to one another. There's another theory that, that uh, was Einstein's theory that says there are some bodies that are so massive that they actually bend space-time, and that's what draws things to them. 
But here's the deal. If I take a ball right now and I throw it, it won't go on forever. It forms a parabola and then drops toward the planet. Why does that happen? Hmm, interesting. When you walked out the door this morning, you probably didn't float away, did you? It was almost like something was dragging you down the whole time. And we've got these celestial bodies, and they're spinning around in these orbits where, where centrifugal force should be pushing them away, but there's something that's holding them in so that they've got a steady rotation. What's going on? Gravity. Now, how do we arrive at that conclusion? Do we understand it comprehensively? No. We just took the broad breadth of information that's out there, and we say there must be something functioning that is making this happen. Okay. So... Uh, that is uh, co coherence. Did I go to coherence? Yes. All right. Let's, let's check the sec a second category there. Let's imagine if I said the Earth is a triangular prism sitting atop the back of a giant space tortoise. That's my contention. So you say, well, is this coherent? Let's see if this makes sense of the facts. Wait a minute. I've never seen a tortoise carrying anything. Not anything the size of a grand piano, much less something the size of a planet. And by the way, planets seem to be round. I see them all out in the, in the universe there that way. And it seems to me that planet Earth might be round. This does not make sense of the world I'm experiencing and all the data that I'm seeing. Okay, so we have correspondence, we have coherence, and lastly, we have consistency. Consistency is a way of measuring truth that looks inward at the claims to see if they contradict one another. Does the story make sense within itself, or does its internal logic or lack of logic cause the story to fall apart? All right, you ready for a test? Here you go. Find the problem with this statement. There are no sentences in the English language that are longer than three words. Can you find the contradiction? Let me do it again. There are no sentences in the English language that are longer than three words. Okay, that sentence has more than three words. It's clearly a contradiction. All right, so we know that that is not true because it contradicts itself. In addition to the three C's, the major tests of truth, there are all sorts of other ways of knowing things, other ways to understand. So, for instance, we have a test of authority. Did an expert say it? Is there somebody who understands? Or we have a test of consensus gentium, majority rule. How many people believe that this is the case? Or custom or tradition? Is it the case that many people throughout history have believed or thought a certain thing? Or emotions, how do I feel about it? Or instinct, that's a valid force of persuasion within the animal kingdom and to a lesser degree within humans. Intuition, sometimes we rush to a judgment and it's the right judgment right away. Naive realism, did you taste it? Did you touch it? Did you smell it? Do you, do you feel it? Then it might be real. Pragmatism, it's true if it works. Is arsenic poison? I could try it and find out. Revelation, a higher power or a higher source has made a particular truth known to you. Right? These are all other tests of truth. Now, here's what I want you to understand from this. I'm trotting this out, uh, not because we could, I mean, we could go into detail on all these things, and maybe we'll do that in a class later on sometime in this church's history. I know you don't want to do that right now, but uh, here's why I'm trotting this out. I want you to know that there are tons of ways to know things and have confidence in the things we believe. But I don't think you have to run through all this in order to assess the value of something. If I had a basketball right here and I threw it at you right now, many of you would catch it, some of you would dodge, some of you would bat it aside, but you did not do that because you went, what's that ball made of? And I'm looking at Ben's musculature and I'm looking at the trajectory of his hand and I'm going to do some calculations real quick and I'm going to figure out where that ball is going to, oh, it's coming toward me. 
you didn't do that. You just, of, of your own nature, your, of your design, you analyzed what was going on and you responded. The same thing happens with truth. You've assessed the value of truth statements dozens of times already today. Right now, many of you are sitting in this room and you're evaluating the truth statements that I'm making right now. You're analyzing them. Some of you are like thinking about what you want for lunch, but some of you are analyzing the truth statements I'm making. And here's what's ironic about that. Even if you disagree with everything I've said so far, you're sitting there and you're going, nope, I don't agree with that. And here's why. And then you're using tests of truth to discern that tests of truth won't work. You see the irony in that? It's, it's something you have to do in order to accomplish anything in this regard. Let's discuss cutting off the branch you're sitting on. It is precisely through these methods that we can really determine that postmodernism, relativism, and agnosticism have serious issues. Ready for a little test? Here we go. Okay. So remember, postmodernism says that language and human minds ensure that all truth is subjective. There are no objective truths. With that in mind, ready? Analyze this statement. And this is a statement that postmodernists make. I'm not sniping statements that we can easily pick apart. These are real statements here. Language cannot convey objective truth. Think about that for just a second. Language cannot convey objective truth. Exactly. If language, did you, anybody understand that? Did you understand the statement I just made? Then I conveyed objective truth. So if this is true, then it's false. It fails the test of coherence. How about this? There are no real truths, only narratives. If that's true, then guess what it is? But it's a real truth. So if it's true, then it's false, again. All right. Now, beyond the, the problems with postmodernism in this regard, even though it's got issues in that regard, there are worse features to it. Uh, postmodernism has led to some rather insane belief sets, not the least of which is the denial that there is anything relevant in science or mathematics. I'm not exaggerating this. Real university professors all around the world right now tout this very ideology which just goes to show there is no idea so insane that you can't find some professor somewhere to endorse it. All right, Lori Rubel, a mathematics education professor at New York's Brooklyn College, tweeted this. The idea that math or data is culturally neutral or in any way objective is a myth. Rubel added, along with the statement of, of, of course, math is neutral because two plus two equals four trope, are the related and creepy math is pure or protect math ideas. She claimed that this kind of statement reeks of white supremacist patriarchy. She said this, I'd rather think on nurturing people and protecting the planet with math in service of them goals. She said them goals, by the way. I, I didn't make that mistake. That was hers. I, I just figured I wouldn't correct her. Another professor responded to her, yes, this attends to the cultural history's dimension. And we also want to attend to the living practice dimension, which is more about imagining a version that builds up on ancestral knowledges but does not exist yet. In other words, when you build a plane, sure you could build it using math, but how about trying to build it using ancestral knowledges? Do you want to fly on that plane? No. The denial that math is fundamental to, to reality is absurd. And yet, postmodernists do this kind of thing all the time. 
The second group we want to look at and investigate, relativism. Remember, relativism says truth is all a matter of personal interpretation. There are no absolute truths. Again, we arrive at some serious and I believe fatal flaws in that philosophy. Listen to this statement. I want you to think about it for a second. What's true for you may be false for me, and what's true for me may be false for you. See a problem? Isn't that statement necessarily true for both of us? Or it's false. It's either false or it's true for both of us. So again, it's another failure. How about this? There are no absolute truths, only relative truths. <laughs> if, it's if, it's, if it's true, it's absolutely true, which means it's also false. Okay? These things fall apart. Again, if you just think a, a little bit on the matter. Now, beyond, again, the obvious consistency issues with relativism are issues of practice and application. If someone says to you, as Oprah says all the time, everyone should follow their own moral path, ask them, everyone? Really, everyone? Would you give that advice to Hitler? Just follow your own moral path. Stalin, Ceausescu, Mao Zedong, uh, Pol Pot, follow your own moral compass. Great advice. The, great, uh, the greatest villains of human history, by the way, were all following their moral compass. They were all doing what they thought was right. It also creates really bizarre concepts about the world in general. So take this idea. Um, I believe that God exists. You believe that God doesn't exist. The relativist says we're both right. Now listen, did I create an all-powerful, infinite God with my belief in him? Or did you destroy an all-powerful, infinite God with your lack of belief? In that case, who's God? If you can create or destroy God with your belief, who's God in that scenario? That would be you. Relativism falls into all sorts of absurdities, just ridiculous things. Let's talk about agnostics. Agnostics, of course, argue that no one can know. So no one can know anything for sure, particularly about God. Here's the immediate response you should all have to that. Do you know that for sure? J.P. Moreland once, uh, he's a brilliant Christian philosopher. Uh, he was on his campus and he was walking across campus and he found out that somebody in the philosophy department was a true agnostic. And so he went to the guy and he says, I understand you're an agnostic. The guy said, yes, I am. He said, can I ask you a question? Sure. Do you know you're an agnostic or do you think you're an agnostic? And the man was savvy enough to say, I guess I just think I'm an agnostic. J.P. Moreland says, follow-up question. Do you know that you think you're an agnostic or do you just think that you think you're an agnostic? And the, and the man said, well, okay, I guess I just think that I think an agnostic. J.P. Moreland said he went on with this for the whole like, walk they were doing to the library. They just kept going and going. J.P. Moreland says, listen, if you can't tell me that you know that you think 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 you can't know anything, are you sure this is your view? I think you need to rethink it. <laughs> now, you might think that's a word game. That is not a word game. That's good philosophy and action. That's somebody who's getting people to really think about what's going on in their worldview. That's the kind of thing that we're called to as Christians. Relativism has its issues. Agnosticism has its issues. It turns out, by the way, that agnosticism is not uh, typically applied fairly in the world. So when you talk to somebody who says, I cannot know, 
they really mean they only cannot know pretty much one thing. They don't, again, they don't worry that gravity is going to stop working on them today. They're not worried. They don't have agnosticism about how the bridge was built and whether it will hold the weight of their car. They don't buy a load of groceries and then throw it away because it just might be poison and I can't know. Do you know where their agnosticism is applied? To God. Any God or religious claim, that's where agnosticism gets applied, but they don't apply that universally. They don't, they don't stop every 10 minutes and go, maybe I don't exist. All right. If you zoned out so far and you're like, okay, enough with the philosophy. All right, enough with the philosophy, kind of. Let's bring it home. What happens when God enters the truth equation? What happens when God enters the truth equation? What does God do to this whole discussion of whether or not there is an absolute truth? Listen, if there is a God, then objective truth exists. If there is a God, objective truth exists. Why is this the case? Because the monotheistic God, by all parameters, by all theological and philosophical measurements, would be the very definition of absolute truth. If you were to talk to an atheist, to an agnostic, if you were to talk to somebody who is a postmodernist or a relativist, and you were to say to them this, here's your hypothetical question, if there's a God, does absolute truth exist? They would say, yes. If there is a God, then there is absolute truth. But the good news is, it's not just the case that there's a God. Here's a follow-up question for somebody who thinks along those lines. If there is a God that can be known, could we have access to absolute truth? And again, even the most critical skeptic would have to say, yes, if there is a God that could be known, then we could have access to absolute truth. It is possible that we could know something absolutely. So, Coming to know God, then, would be, by definition, coming to know what is absolutely true. Well, what do the scriptures tell us in this regard? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We've all heard that before, right? But look at the second part. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If you know God, then you really get it. You understand. You have access to absolute truth. If God has revealed himself, though, it goes even beyond that. So God exists, absolute truth exists. If God can be known, then we can know something that is absolute truth. But what if God, what if God has spoken? Then not only can we know, but we can know deeply. We can have certainty about absolute truth. And what do we see in the scriptures? God has spoken. Was truth a big deal to Jesus? Was it? Yes, it was. John chapter 14, verse 6. We sang it this morning. We read it from Scripture this morning. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus identified himself as the embodiment of truth. I count more than 80 times in the gospel where Jesus proceeds a statement by saying, I tell you the truth, or truly, truly, I say to you, or truly, I say to you. Truth matters to Jesus. Beyond that, John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Listen to what Jesus says about you and I. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You cannot just know God, but if, if Jesus has revealed himself to you, his description of you is this, you know truth, and truth has liberated you from the pit, from the lies of this world. You can know 
not only is Jesus the truth, not only does Jesus say his disciples will know the truth if they know and follow him, but we're told in the scriptures that the scriptures themselves are truth. Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting or always present. Sorry, relativist, it doesn't change with time. It doesn't change with circumstances. The truth of God is everlasting. What about the Holy Spirit? God has spoken via the Holy Spirit. And you might notice in scriptures that the Holy Spirit is also known as the spirit of truth. John chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, he says, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. In other words, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have immediate access to the truth of almighty God. Amen. So here's what we're told then. If God exists, if there is a God, then we can know absolute truth exists. If God exists and can be known, then we can know absolute truth. But if God exists and has spoken, then we can be certain of the truths that we are receiving because they come directly from the source of all truth. God has spoken. He's spoken through the prophets. He's spoken through his son. He's spoken through the scriptures. He's speaking through the Holy Spirit. We can know truth. One last thing I want to say before we wrap up. The truth of God is already known. We're going to dig into this more a little bit next week. I don't believe you've ever met a real atheist in your life. I don't believe you've ever met a real agnostic in your life because what is true of God is evident through the natural world. Romans 1 tells us as much. Romans 1, chapter eight, or verse 18 through 20. For God does not overlook sin, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who in their wickedness suppress and stifle the truth. In other words, in our wickedness, in our sin, we try to keep truth down, though it is present and emerging at all times. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, in their inner consciousness. For God has made it evident to them. For ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that men are without excuse. We know that there is a God. Here's the glorious thing about truth. The Lord has given us minds. We can analyze, we can think, we can evaluate, but the Lord has also given us revelation. He's spoken to our circumstances. He's speaking to us even now. We can know truth and be free, and we can help others who don't know it be set free. Amen? Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you, O God of truth, that you not only exist, but you you let us know you, and you don't wait for us to know you. You have showed up in human history to reveal yourself to us. God, you are truth. And Lord, as the Christ said, we can know truth, understand, and perceive it when we know you. Help us to know your Son, Father. We pray that you would speak to us through your scriptures and through the Holy Spirit, that we might know and have confidence throughout this life. Thank you for your truth, God. Amen.